0: Have you ever been traveling overseas, logged into your favorite streaming service, and realized oh, your favorite show isn't there? Different countries have different streaming rights, so just because you can watch Breaking Bad at home doesn't mean you can watch it overseas. Well, with Surfshark, you can. Surfshark is the VPN I use every single day. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and get back to watching the favourite shows that I love. Use the link in the description or the episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and get back to watching the shows that you love. With continual development in technology, hackers and cybercriminals are getting better and better at installing viruses and hacking your electronic devices. We've all had antivirus software, but your run-of-the-mill software just isn't good enough anymore. With Surfshark Antivirus, not only will you have antivirus scans and real-time virus protection, but you'll also have access to a VPN. You'll be protected from targeted ads and tracking. You'll be notified if your data gets leaked by data brokers. And most importantly, it's incredibly easy to set up and use. If you feel like your online protection should be better, use the link in the description and episode notes to get 76% off Surfshark Antivirus today and feel safe every day on your devices. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac and my goal is to bring you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. Let's get started. The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne. Chapter 11. The Interior of a Heart. After the incident last described, the intercourse between the clergyman and the physician, though externally the same, was really of another character than it had previously been. The intellect of Roger Chillingworth had now a sufficiently plain path before it. It was not, indeed, precisely that which he had laid out for himself to tread. Calm, gentle, passionless as he appeared, there was yet, we fear, a quite depth of malice hitherto latent, but now active, in this unfortunate old man, which led him to imagine a more intimate revenge than any mortal had ever wreaked upon an enemy. To make himself the one trusted friend to whom should be confided all the fear, the remorse, the agony, the ineffectual repentance, the backward rush of sinful thoughts expelled in vain. All that guilty sorrow hidden from the world, whose great heart would have pitied and forgiven, to be revealed to him, the pitiless, to him, the unforgiving. All that dark treasure to be lavished on the very man to whom nothing else could so adequately pay the debt of vengeance. The clergyman's shy and sensitive reserve had balked this scheme. Roger Chillingworth, however, was inclined to be hardly, if at all, less satisfied with the aspect of affairs which Providence, using the Avenger and his victim for its own purpose, and perchance pardoning where it seemed most to punish, had substituted for his black devices. A revelation, he could almost say, had been granted to him. By its aid, all the subsequent relations betwixt him and Mr. Dimmesdale, not merely the external presence, but in the innermost soul of the latter, seemed to be brought out before his eyes so that he could see and comprehend its every movement. He became thenceforth not a spectator only, but a chief actor in the poor minister's interior world. He could play upon him as he chose. Would he arouse him with a throb of agony? The victim was forever on the rack. It needed only to know the spring that controlled the engine, and the physician knew it well. As at the waving of a magician's wand uprose a grisly phantom, uprose a thousand phantoms, in many shapes, of death or more awful shame, all flocking round about the clergyman and pointing with their fingers at his breast. All this was accomplished with a subtlety so perfect that the minister, though he had constantly a dim perception of some evil influence watching over him, could never gain a knowledge of its actual nature. True, he looked doubtfully, fearfully, even at times with horror and the bitterness of hatred at the deformed figure of the old physician. His gestures, his gait, his grizzled beard, his slightest and more indifferent acts, the very fashion of his garments, were odious in the clergyman's spirit a token implicitly to be relied on of a deeper antipathy in the breast of the latter than he was willing to acknowledge to himself. For, as it was impossible to assign the reason for such distrust and abhorrence, so Mr Dimmesdale, conscious that the poison of one morbid spot was infecting his heart's entire substance, attributed all his presentiments to no other cause. He took himself to task for his bad sympathies in reference to Roger Chillingwood, disregarded the lesson that he should have drawn from them, and did his best to root them out. Unable to accomplish this, he nevertheless, as a matter of principle, continued his habits of social familiarity with the old man, and thus gave him constant opportunities for perfecting the purpose to which, the poor forlorn creature that he was, and more wretched than his victim, the avenger had devoted himself. While thus suffering under the bodily disease, and gnawed and tortured by some black trouble of the soul, and given over to the mechanisms of his deadliest enemy, the Reverend Mr. Dimmesdale had achieved a brilliant popularity in his sacred office. He won it, indeed, in great part by his sorrows. His intellectual gifts, his moral perceptions, his power of experiencing and communicating emotion were kept in a state of preternatural activity by the prick and anguish of his daily life. His fame, though still on its upward slope, already overshadowed the sombre reputations of his fellow clergymen, eminent as several of them were. There were scholars among them who had spent more years in acquiring law connected with the divine profession than Mr. Dimmesdale had lived, and who might well, therefore, be more profoundly versed in such solid and valuable attainments than their youthful brother. There were men, too, of a sturdier texture of mind than his, and endowed with a far greater share of shrewd, hard, iron or granite understanding, which, duly mingled with a fair proportion of doctrinal ingredient, constitutes a highly respectable, efficacious and unamiable variety of the clerical species. There were others, again, true saintly figures whose faculties had been elaborated by wary toil among their books and by patient thought, and etherealized, moreover, by spiritual communications with the better world, into which their purity of life had almost introduced these holy personages with their garments of mortality still clinging to them. All that they lacked was the gift that descended upon the chosen disciples of Pentecost in tongues of name, symbolising, it would seem, not the power of speech in foreign and unknown languages, but that of addressing the whole human brotherhood in the heart's native language. These fathers, otherwise so apostolic, lacked heaven's last and rarest attestation of their office, the tongue of flame. They would have vainly sought, had they ever dreamed of seeking, to express the highest truths through the humblest medium of familiar words and images. Their voices came down, afar and indistinctly, from the upper heights where they habitually dwelt. Not improbably, it was to this latter class of men that Mr. Dimmesdale, by many of his traits of character, naturally belonged. To the high mountain peaks of faith and sanctity he would have climbed had not the tendency been thwarted by the burden, whatever it may be, of crime or anguish beneath which was his doom to totter. It kept him down on a level with the lowest. Him, the man of ethereal attributes, whose voice the angels might have listened to and answered. But this very burden it was that gave him sympathies so intimate with the sinful brotherhood of mankind, so that his heart vibrated in unison with theirs, and received their pain into itself, and sent its own throb of pain through a thousand other hearts in gushes of sad, persuasive eloquence. Oftenest persuasive, but sometimes terrible. The people knew not the power that moved them thus. They deemed the young clergyman a miracle of holiness. They fancied him the mouthpiece of heaven's messages of wisdom and rebuke and love. In their eyes, the very ground on which he trod was sanctified. The virgins of his church grew pale around him, victims of a passion so imbued with religious sentiment that they imagined it to be all religion, and bought it openly in their white bosoms as the most acceptable sacrifice before the altar. The aged members of his flock, beholding Dimmadale's frame so feeble, were they themselves so rugged in their infirmity, believed that he would go heavenward before them and enjoined it upon their children that their old bones should be buried close to their young pastor's holy grave. And all this time, perchance, when poor Mr. Dimmesdale were thinking of his grave, he questioned with himself whether the grass would ever grow on it, because an accursed thing must there be buried. It is inconceivable the agony with which this public veneration tortured him. It was his genuine impulse to adore the truth and to reckon all things shadow-like and utterly devoid of weight and value that had not its divine essence as the life within their life. Then what was he? A substance? Or the dimmest of all shadows? He longed to speak out from his own pulpit at the full height of his voice and tell the people what he was. I, whom you behold in these black garments of the priesthood, I, who ascend the sacred desk, And turn my pale face heavenward, taking upon myself to hold communion on your behalf with the Most High Omniscience. I, in whose daily life you discern the sanctity of Enoch, I, whose footsteps, as you suppose, leave a gleam along my earthly track whereby the pilgrims that shall come after me may be guided to the regions of the blessed, I, who have lain the hand of baptism upon your children, I, who breathed a passing prayer over your dying friends, to whom the Amen sounded faintly from a world which that they quitted. I, your pastor, whom you so reverence and trust, am utterly a pollution and a lie. More than once Mr. Dimmesdale had gone into the pulpit with a purpose never to come down its steps until he should have spoken words like the above. More than once he had cleared his throat and drawn in the long, deep, and tremulous breath, which, when sent forth again, would come burdened with the black secret of his soul. More than once, nay, more than a hundred times, he had actually spoken. But how? He had told his hearers that he was altogether vile, a viler companion of the vilest, the worst of sinners, an abomination, a thing of unimaginable iniquity, and that the only wonder... "'was that they did not see his wretched body "'shriveled up before their eyes "'by the burning wrath of the Almighty. "'Could there be a plainer speech than this? Would not the people start up in their seats "'by a simultaneous impulse "'and tear him out of the pulpit which he defiled? "'Not so indeed. "'They heard it all, "'and did but reverence him the more. "'They little guessed what deadly purport "'lurked in those self-condemning words. "'The godly youth,' they said amongst themselves, the saint on earth, alas, if he discerned such sinfulness in his own white soul, what hard spectacle would he behold in thine or mine? The minister well knew, subtle, but remorseful hypocrite he was, the light in which his vague confession would be viewed. He'd striven to put a cheat upon himself by making the avowal of a guilty conscience, but had gained only one other sin and a self-acknowledged shame without the momentary relief of being self-deceived. He had spoken the very truth and transformed it into the veriest falsehood. And yet, by the constitution of his nature, he loved the truth and loathed the lie, as men never did. Therefore, above all things else, he loathed his miserable self. His inward trouble drove him to practices more in accordance with the old corrupted faith of Rome than with the better light of the church in which he had been born and bred. In Mr. Dimmesdale's secret closet, Under lock and key, there was a bloody scourge. Oftentimes, this Protestant and Puritan divine piled it on his shoulders, laughing bitterly at himself the while, and smiting so much more the pitilessly because of that bitter laugh. It was his custom, too, as it had been for many other pious Puritans, to fast. Not however like them in order to purify the body and render it fit a medium of celestial illumination, but rigorously, until his knees trembled beneath him as an act of penance. He kept vigils, likewise, night after night, sometimes in utter darkness, sometimes with a glimmering lamp, and sometimes viewing his own face in a looking-glass by the most powerful light which could be thrown upon it. He thus typified the constant introspection wherewith he tortured, but could not purify himself. In these lengthened vigils, his brain often reeled, and visions seemed to flit before him. Perhaps seen doubtfully, and by a faint light of their own, in the remote dimness of the chamber, or more vividly and close beside him within the looking-glass. Now it was a herd of diabolic shapes that grinned and mocked at the pale minister and beckoned him away with them. Now a group of shining angels who flew upward, heavenly, as sorrow-laden, but grew more ethereal as they rose. Now came the dead friends of his youth and his white-bearded father with a saint-like frown and his mother "'turning her face away as she passed by. "'Ghost of a mother, "'thinnest fantasy of a mother, "'methinks she might have thrown a pitying glance towards her son. "'And now, through the chamber "'which these spectral thoughts had made so ghastly, "'glided Hester Prynne, "'leading a long little pearl in her scarlet garb "'and pointing her forefinger, first at the scarlet letter on her bosom, "'and then at the clergyman's own breast. None of these visions ever quite deluded him. At any moment, by an effort of his will, he could discern substances through their misty lack of substance and convince himself that they were not solid in their nature, like yonder table of carved oak, or that big, square, leathern-bound and brazen clasped volume of divinity. But for all that, they were, in one sense, the truest and most substantial things which the poor minister now dealt with. It has the unspeakable misery of a life so false as his that it steals the pith and substance out of whatever realities there are around us and which are meant by heaven to be the spirit's joy and nutriment. To the untrue man, the whole universe is false. It is impalpable. It shrinks to nothing within his grasp. And he himself, in so far as he shows himself in a false light, becomes a shadow or indeed ceases to exist. The only truth that continued to give Mr. Dimmesdale real existence on this earth was the anguish in his innermost soul and the dissembled expression of it in his aspect. Had he once found power to smile and wear a face of gaiety, there would have been no such man. On one of those ugly nights, which we have faintly hinted at, but for one to picture forth, the minister started from his chair. A new thought had struck him there might be a moment's peace in it. Attiring himself with as much care as if it had been for public worship, and precisely in the same manner, he stole softly down the staircase, undid the door, and issued forth. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz, and if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcasts, please leave a review. It is the easiest way to get this in front of as many people as possible, and it really makes my day to read them. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.